All right, so we are in John chapter 10 today, as we've been working our way through. John chapter 9, you'll recall, um, it all started, verse 1, as he, that is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples said, hey, why is this man blind from birth? And we, we saw that last week, and it was yet another opportunity for Jesus to interface with um, not just the people uh, that were kind of following him and, and his disciples who were uh, listening closely and, and watching him as he interacted with the people, but we also know that he was in the, um, the uh, location of uh, the temple, and he was interacting with uh, the Pharisees that were there. And of course, he was just, con- they were continually being tweaked and bothered and um, upset uh, by his teaching. And as we finished up, uh, we had the Pharisees interrogating the blind man. You remember this? And, uh, you know, who was it that, that healed you? And, and then he starts to push back at them and so forth. And uh, then as it comes down, verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast the blind man out of the temple. It says, having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He said, who is he that I may believe in him? He said, you've seen him. It's me that's speaking to you. And he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And then he says, Verse 39, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And you can kind of just imagine this kind of sarcastic tone where they're saying, hey, I don't know who you're calling blind, but I'm certainly not blind. That's kind of what they meant. But what, are, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Um, In other words, what do you think? You know, chapter 10. Continually we reminded that John has, well, back up. Many years ago, if you read, you can find pretty good uh, online information about how the Bible was put together. If you read that, and we talk commonly about um, that it was far after the Bible was written that people came and uh, putting chapters and verses and all that, right? But the reason that we start a new chapter is because there's a whole new section of content and the people saw that this was a natural break in the story and a good place to start a new chapter, right? So here we have this chunk of scripture that John has made. Um, it's another little part of his whole presentation. And, and so we have all this together. And this all refers back to his purpose. So let's go back to John chapter 20. Go through our verse, John 20, verse 31. Here we go. 
But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In this set of scriptures that we have before us today, and we're actually going to split it. Um, I think the way the time's going to work out, we're going to split it to about half um, this week and about half next week. Um, you can see that John has brought together some teachings of Jesus that all have a common theme. The theme in chapter 9 was blind people versus people that can see, um, people who are spiritually blind, how they could be spiritually brought to life, right? So here we have this section that's all about sheep and shepherds. Let's read the first six verses. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. And in verse 6, this little explanatory comment, and if you have the words of Jesus in red in your Bible, this is written in black. Verse 6, this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So, in chapter 10, we have this figure of speech, as John calls it. Uh, we might call it a parable or, or a saying, uh, a description of what was going on. The whole rest of the chapter is Jesus unpacking it for them because when he hits them with these few sentences, their response is, what? What's that got to do with anything? So, I'm going to go through it again. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. To understand this, and, and you guys probably studied this already, but just to get us all on the same page, this refers to a situation where the piece of architecture that's being talked about here is the sheep fold, right? So you could picture basically a wall, probably somewhat of a circular wall that would be continuous. I picture maybe a little bit of an overlap where the two ends of the circle come together, and that's where the opening is. You might have a community sheepfold, a pen, basically, to bring your sheep at night. And this could be used by a number of flocks. Running the sheepfold would be the watchman, as some translations say, or the gatekeeper. So, a shepherd could bring in, lead his flock in at night. The gatekeeper would 
watch them. Um, and then it says, verse 3, to him the gatekeeper opened. You know, the, the real shepherd that comes in, the sheep hear his voice. So the next day he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. If you're not a shepherd who has deposited sheep into the sheepfold, the gatekeeper is not going to let you in to come mess with the sheep that aren't yours. Right? Very thankful, I'll say, to our security team who has established a very similar setup for our children, right? Unless you have already been checked in and checked out, you're not going to have access to those children. Similar sort of thing. Again, what does this have to do? Well, continuing to build the context here, skip ahead down to verse 22. Now, there is a little bit of scholarly debate as to whether or not the first half of chapter 10 happens at the same place as what was happening with the blind man but it seems that the same audience is generally connected to the first half of the chapter and the last half of the chapter because remember, the whole chapter is unpacking what was spoken about the first five verses. So in the middle of this, we get our context. Verse 22, At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. What is the Feast of the Dedication? Does anybody know? I did not know either. I had to look it up. This is why it's so much fun to teach. You, you guys are really, it's selfish that Dad and I get to teach because we just get to learn all sorts of craziness. The Feast of the Dedication is what we call Hanukkah. Does anyone know when Hanukkah starts? Tonight. Isn't this weird the way this works out? I think this is so cool. This is the only place in Scripture that we hear of this topic. And it just so happens that we're talking about that today. It just so happens. So, here's a little flashback review, right? Teachers are always doing circular review, right? Who, who are our teachers? Right? You circle back. You keep talking. Let's go back to Daniel. Remember Daniel, we got into the prophecy part, and there was this vision he had of the big statue that was gold and silver, bronze, and then it what got iron and clay. And we talked about how that represented um, the Medes and the Persians and the Assyrians and all that sort of stuff worked their way down. We got down, I think it was maybe the bronze part, we said that that was probably Alexander the Great, right? 300 and something B.C. He had conquered that part of the world, and for the next 150 years or so, what's called the Hellenization, in other words, the Greekifying, <laughs> that's not a word, um, of Palestine was happening, right? And think about it, that effect was so profound 
that a full 300 and something years later, they were still translating the Old Testament into Greek. Our New Testament was mostly written in Greek, right? So that effect of what Alexander the Great brought was very profound. Even later, as the Romans came in, that Greek influence was still heavily going on. Well, you remember Alexander the Great died. His empire was divided into four big sections, one of whom was led by a guy named Antiochus IV, I think. Very evil person. You, and you'll remember that he was the one that desecrated the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar, and in general caused all sorts of things to run amok. And at the same time as there was this overt Greek influence, basically forcing the Jews to worship idols and to eat pork, among other things, at the same time, there was a faction of Jews who were cozying up to the Greeks, who by the true Jews, you might say, were considered, you know, corrupt, for lack of a better word. So then there arose a revolt, you've heard of the Maccabean Revolt, where against all odds, they drove the, um, the Greeks out of the temple and so forth, and then... It was unclean, so it was this ceremonial cleansing that had to happen for eight days. And that involved lighting the candle. They didn't have enough oil but for one day, but miraculously there was enough oil to last all eight days. And that's why Hanukkah is called the Festival of Lights um, and runs eight days. And if you read the Jewish websites, that's why they eat fried food, which we can get behind fried food, right? <laughs> what does that have to do with this? Well, you had corrupt leaders going on back around the time of the Maccabean Revolt. You had these pagan influences that were not, you know, so you just substitute Romans for Greeks, right? So now you've got Jews that were wanting power. Now they're, as we would use the phrase, in bed with the Romans, just like 150 years prior, they were in bed with the Greeks. That's why this kind of makes sense, because Jesus is going to be talking about the difference between good shepherds and bad shepherds and this would have sounded very familiar to them because let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 34 most of the prophets were basically God's men talking to the people about their corruptness and how they needed to turn to a right and 
what a proper leader should look like and also talk about God as an example of the proper leader. While you're turning to Ezekiel 34, I'll quote Isaiah 40, which just so happens to be one of the big chapters that the Messiah comes from. A few verses later, it says about God, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So this concept of God as the shepherd is old. Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me. So Ezekiel's prophesying. It says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds. Now, I've... I've lost count of exactly how many hundreds of years we are apart from Jesus' day. But what is Ezekiel doing? He's prophesying against corrupt shepherds. Things don't change. I guess, you know, if you're Satan, if you got something that's working, you just stick with it, right? And clearly, it's still working. (laughs) Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek them. Go down to verse 11. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. God as the good shepherd. That's all coming to mind now, right? The Pharisees are still hanging around. They're still listening to Jesus. And so Jesus starts off this teaching. Let's read it again. He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, a sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. So, you've got Jesus putting himself as a genuine shepherd, and now the evidence that he is a genuine shepherd, what's the evidence of a genuine shepherd? That the sheep hear him, and know his voice and they follow him out 
Remember, you could have a sheepfold with a number of different flocks of sheep. The sheep that aren't related to that shepherd aren't going to do anything. They're going to continue on whatever they're doing. But the sheep that know his voice are going to follow him. But this goes way over their head. So, verse 7. So, okay. Uh, okay, well, well, well then, then listen to this. Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Now, he shifted here a little bit because they didn't get the point, right? So in the first section, we've got the gatekeeper of the sheepfold, right? But it's not hard to imagine that you might have smaller sheepfolds that were just designed for one flock, in which case the shepherd becomes the gatekeeper, right? So he's just trying to make a point here. So there is a shift here just to pay attention to that. I am the door of the sheep. So in other words, I'm guarding the gate now. And basically, the gatekeeper or the shepherd in this case would sleep across the opening so that, you know, the bad animals or whatever can't come in and the sheep can't get out. I'm the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Who are the thieves and the robbers? These are the Pharisees that want whatever they can get from the public, right? They want the status, they want the following, they want the power, they want the control. They're not caring about the sheep. And when the tough gets going, they're out of there. He says, though, but I'm the good shepherd. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, why would the shepherd lay down his life for the sheep? It's not, it's not that, you know, he commits suicide and says, oh, I love you, sheep. No, it's because they're in danger. They are in danger. And that's why the shepherd would risk his life to protect them because they're in danger. Verse 14. Again, I am the good shepherd. And if you go through and underline all the different places where the shepherd is talked about, it's quite a few times. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So what's he talking about here? 
So it says, I have other sheep that are not of the fold. So what's the fold in this passage of Scripture? The fold is the Jews, the Israelites. That is, that's what's going on now. But he says, I've got other sheep that aren't in this fold. Who are those? Right? The Gentiles. Praise God for the other sheep. Even Samaritans. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And remember, what did Ezekiel say? He said, I will seek them out. Right? I lost my place. Pretty sure it said that. I had 1554. So, Ezekiel 34, 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, and we know that in Scripture, when you have these repetitive things, it's like bold, underlined, italic, with a bigger font, right? It's like, Behold, I, I myself, that's three times, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. And here we have, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. One commentator said that you could also say, because the Father loves me, I lay down my life that I may take it up again, which uh, to my ear sounds a little better but verse 18 it says no one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again this charge I have received from my father so if you go back and you look at all the doctrine that's in this little section so we have I know my own my own know me. This, I will call them by name. These are the sheep my father has given me. Right? So we have this, the concept of God's sovereignty, the concept of election, the concept of security, eternal security. Uh, we have the notion of who's doing most of the work here right that that it's God that brings us we have grace as part of that the sheep don't, don't deserve any of this but that's what they get we have we have the cross right we have this substitutionary atonement we have my sheep are in danger they need a savior i'm the savior jesus is saying I'm going to do this because I love my sheep. In fact, I'm the only one that can take my life because it's mine to give. And oh, by the way, I can take it back up again. Verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews. <laughs> you almost have to feel a little pity for him, just a little bit to say, you know, 
they just they just don't know what to do with themselves or with Jesus. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, they keep going back to this, right? He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? And others have said, did you not just see what he did with the blind man? Now I'm paraphrasing here. These are not the words of one who is possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So this statement here is, is why some people think that there's a fairly smooth transition from an audience standpoint in terms of who the Pharisees were because the, the, the sign, the miracle that Jesus just did is very fresh in their mind. He doesn't have a demon. Quit saying that. Is that all you've got? Didn't you see what he did with the blind man? Right? You know, I mean, they're, they're just calling him out on it like, you're clearly getting desperate here. So, Ezekiel 34 talks about the good shepherd that's going to go out and look for their sheep. Isaiah 40 talks about the coming Messiah. And we're heading into that season where we celebrate the coming of the Messiah. This was the feast of the dedication, the festival of lights, where it commemorated a revolution that, at least for a while, overthrew the government. So you can imagine that the Pharisees are getting nervous on a couple of fronts because some of this talk is sounding revolutionary. And you'll remember the context was that there was um, there were often false messiahs that were coming around. Because <coughs> the people are feeling oppressed by the Romans. They're, they need a, they need I think my battery went out. They need a messiah. They're on the lookout for Messiah. The Romans have not let up. In fact, it's going to get worse. Now let's flash a little bit forward in history. John is writing this to his group of churches in and around Turkey, Ephesus, Jews, converted Jews perhaps, and what, was, what were those people facing? They were facing false shepherds. They were facing people who were, they had drifted from the gospel. They were teaching things that had veered afar. So John is not just writing for evangelism, like in 2031, but he's also telling them there are still false shepherds. There are still thieves and robbers. So be on the lookout because the good shepherd is going to be doing good things. He's, in other words, he's going to be doing things in accordance with Scripture, things that are fulfilling Scripture, not things that are contrary to Scripture. Which brings us to today, just briefly,
Do any of you get the newsletter, email, or Instagram, whatever, from Ministry Watch? Ministrywatch.com is a ministry that actually was has its base in Charlotte. Its job is to help Christian ministries police themselves. It will call out craziness, corruption, sin among our own evangelical circle. If they are ever confronted with any request by charity for any sort of money and you'd want to know if it's legit, go to ministrywatch.com. It will tell you if they're a, men, a member of the Evangelical Council for Financial Authority, the ECFA, which most, but not all, but most legit organizations are. It will show you their bank statements. It will show you how much they spend on raising money versus how much they spend on ministry. But their website will also call out the bad sheep. If you go to their website, even now, here are some of their headlines. A pastor who approved a marital rape was removed from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. A Florida youth leader arrested on charges he molested a teen boy. A bookkeeper sentenced for embezzling more than $450,000. Philippine church leader charged with child sex trafficking. Now there's some good ones on here too. But the point is we still have thieves and robbers and worse who want to use Christianity for the same corrupt purposes as a people in Jesus' day and in Isaiah's day and in Ezekiel's day. It's the same old thing. So be on the lookout this is a time of year where everybody wants to take your money. Merritt's mom has some dementia. Most of you guys know this. Every day I go down to her kitchen table and throw away six or eight requests of people who want what little money she has. We've got to be on the lookout. Now, Every church should be paying attention to their own pastor, to their own elders, right? It's a tension there because Lord knows our pastors get way more criticism than, criticism than they deserve. But at least we ought to have that awareness that if we ever do hear anything really crazy from the pulpit, or from any other leader for that matter, we ought to have a little conversation, right? Did I hear what I heard? Oh, no, no, no. You misheard me. Okay, great. But at least we need to be aware of that because um, we don't want anything that we're connected to to show up on the bad side of this, right? All right. I better quit. Questions, comments? It's kind of cool how it all works together, right? Sorry,